You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee at Acumen Law Corporation, and this week, my co-hostist with the mostest, Paul Doroshenko, is not joining me because he's out waiting in line for the liquor store to try and get there before 8 o'clock so that he can get himself some booze or something. I don't know. I was kind of making a joke at his expense, but it's failed. Anyway, two Driving Law episodes this month have fallen on, or I guess... Last month and this month, technically, have fallen on holidays, which means no driving law. But the good news is that because it's New Year's Day, it's a new year, we thought we would start off the year by recapping some of our favorite moments over the year of 2020 in our driving law podcast. So sorry for the clip show, but this is what you're going to get. Have lots to talk about, and not, uh, you know, I haven't been hosting this podcast for the last basically three weeks. You've been stepping into the hosting role. I know. Do I should get some sort of reward? What What do you should want? have had a beer, cold beer, ready for me here or something? Yeah, you you want me to go get get you a beer, put my hands all over it. I'm safe. I think I had it. Yeah, and I'm not I'm not coughing. Like I'm not shedding virus because I'm not doing any of the things that the virus makes you do. Well, there you go. There's no droplets. Plus, I'm wearing my N95 mask and my gown and <laughs> hat and my gloves, so I'm pretty safe, too. So and you I'm have two an meters away. N95 mask, and you're not giving it to a healthcare professional? I just have one. I've had it for the last six years. Right. Okay. So, speaking of the pandemic, because that's all anybody's talking about, I know that you talked to Eric McGracken, and I know that you... Um, and I talked a little bit about ICBC the last time I talked to you, which was right after my diagnosis, basically. Um, but everything's changed for ICBC as a result of the coronavirus. Everything's changed. They've moved to online and over the phone insurance renewals and license renewals, mm-hmm. which you're kind of like, why did this just become a thing now? Yeah. Like, I don't get it. It saves. Not only does it save time, but as I'm building up to something here, Paul, not only does it save time for people who don't have to go and wait around at ICBC or an insurance office, it saves money. You know how many fewer people ICBC has to employ if people are doing it online? Oh, for sure. No doubt. Which makes me think, you know, all those costs at ICBC that are blamed on the personal injury lawyers... What about just a really poorly run system that didn't account for the ability of people to do things online and and thereby save money? Well, I've been talking to people who are part of the justice system who have been saying, for years I wanted to see them do this, 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 and this. But there were so many people saying no and but and, well, yeah, but you can't do it because of this. And there's always the the naysayers. Uh, And now these things are being done rapidly because they have no choice and the naysayers are being just disregarded and you know they're figuring out a way to do it and that's what they're doing at icbc right now too thank goodness that's the way it should be yeah and hopefully this online insurance and license renewal and over the phone insurance and license renewals sticks around 
welcome to the podcast, Aiden Campbell. Thank you, Aiden, for agreeing to join me on the podcast. How are you doing? Happy to be here. Good. I uh, am a little bit um, feeling the COVID blues, but all in all, pretty good. Fair enough. Head yeah. above water. <laughs> yeah, well, that's that's all you really need. Um, I was hoping you and I could spend a minute talking about what immigration rules apply to people who are facing various driving charges because it's even for me incredibly confusing and i'm not sure i fully understand it all i think there's sort of like three buckets to think about um when considering uh driving offenses and immigration status there's uh Offenses like related to driving that can lead to immigration problems. Mm-hmm. Um, Canadian offenses committed in Canada. Mm-hmm. There are non-driving. <laughs> um, oh, then I guess then there's offenses related to driving committed abroad that screw up your immigration trying to come into Canada. And maybe it's only two. I I should take that back. It's really two issues. Um, But I would split the Canadian offenses into two groups. That is sort of Provincial Motor Vehicle Act offenses that don't normally rise to the level of causing any immigration issues. So like prohibited driving -driving traffic tickets. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. Um, And then non-driving Stuff. And then DUIs in my head sort of bridge the gap, where right. those are criminal offenses that happen while you're driving, but aren't really about the driving, they're about the intoxication. Okay, all right. So let's just start with the the provincial driving-related offenses, um, like driving while prohibited charges. A lot of people are here on licenses from foreign jurisdictions, they get suspended because they're not complying with the requirements for their foreign jurisdiction licenses, and then they drive during their suspension because they don't realize that even though they might hold a valid license from India or China or Brazil or wherever, uh, that their driving privileges aren't valid in BC. Can somebody who's convicted of a driving while prohibited offense end up deported? If, and this is answered one like a lawyer I to ask you about <laughs> because I have seen this happen where and I don't know driving law well enough to know when something escalates from a motor vehicle act offense to a criminal code offense for it to cause you any immigration problems it needs to be a federal offense it doesn't matter how heinous the criminal or the provincial conduct is if it's not a federal offense the federal immigration bureaucracy does not care by statute. <laughs> okay. Well, that's like a just a very helpful way to know if you're not charged under a federal statute, you can't be deported for it. Exactly. And it's uh, that's just very clear in the Immigration Act and something that I feel like people get confused about. We have there's interesting stuff like poaching and other wildlife offenses because they're provincial never lead to uh, immigration consequences, whereas cruelty to animals which sometimes can go hand in hand with a wildlife offense charge, though not usually, um, does lead to criminal inadmissibility to Canada. Maybe it's worth backing up. And what we're talking about when we're talking about immigration problems is, in this case, generally just 
criminal inadmissibility to Canada. Mm-hmm. And that breaks down into uh, serious criminality, which is any offense with a sentence of 10 years or over as the maximum penalty, um, or sentences for which you've been given uh, six months or more, or more than six months, more than six months in this case. I can never remember which way the thing goes, and I'm not looking at the statute. But there's one that's six months or more, and there's one that's more than six months, and it's very confusing. Yep. Um. And I look it up every single time, because I never want to be wrong. Um, but in any case, that's serious crime. If you're a permanent resident, that's all you have to worry about. Permanent residence, if you already have status, you can only lose it for serious criminality. So Temporary residents, on the other hand, can lose their status for criminality simpliciter, or people trying to come in can be barred from Canada for simple criminality. And that's uh, just any other criminal code offense that uh, is prosecutable by indictment, so hybrid offenses and indictable offenses. And, and for our listeners, all driving offenses in the criminal code are all hybrid offenses, and so therefore are presumed indictable. Under the Immigration Act, yeah. We, we just decide if it could ever be. doesn't matter what the practice of any of the Crown offices is. Uh, there are offenses that I'm sure you never see prosecuted by indictment, but for immigration purposes, it does not matter. If there's a deeming provision, uh, it's going to cause you problems. Now, if the Crown makes an election in your specific case, does that change it for the purposes of immigration? Does not matter, unfortunately. Wow. Deemed offenses are deemed offenses. So it's, if it's a hybrid, it's considered indictable, and it could lead to immigration issues. That is fascinating. My next guest is an ICBC defense lawyer. I know him through Twitter, Uh, Rabjeet Walia. He is an excellent, hilarious person with a dark sense of humor. And he and I recently, um, well, he organized and put together a panel on uh, law and mental health and trial stress, um, which was all inspired by a tweet that he wrote. Um, Great guy. And he's going to talk to us a little bit about the ICBC situation right now from the perspective of an ICBC defense lawyer also facing the prospect of looming unemployment. Hello, RJ, and uh, I introduced you when I recorded the introduction as Rabjeet, but you go by RJ, and you were just telling me the story, but I don't know how to operate a soundboard, so it uh, didn't get recorded. <laughs> That's perfectly fine. RJ is definitely what I go by. Rabjeet is reserved for when my parents are mad at me or for official purposes, but I prefer RJ, and I think that it's easier for everyone involved, so please feel free to call me RJ. It also makes you sound more like a comic book superhero. It really does provide a level of casual gravitas that I never convey. Yeah. So I'm glad to have it. <laughs> it's, I don't know, like if I had like a, a way to like have a nickname that would, you know, and then you transform into Rabjeet in court and you're, you know, Mr. Walia, distinguished counsel who can defeat plaintiffs with a single argument or something like that. You know, it'd be interesting if I was able to do that. It would make my life a lot easier. But I think you've got the better catchier name because you can walk in and say, I'm Kyla Lee. And it's just got that level of, oh, I've got to pay attention now. And, <laughs> or, 
oh, I really should have brought my notes today. <laughs> yeah, I doubt that. <laughs> I think no, most people enough. are like, uh, you know, I say, I'm Kyla Lee, and then there's a collective eye roll from everybody in the courtroom because they know it's going to be long and painful. <laughs> you know what, to be honest, though, I think that, you know, reputations always speak for themselves, and they always come... I've always been taught that they enter a room before you walk in, but to be honest, I've never heard anything but good things when I hear people talk about you, so... Oh, well, thank you. I've never yeah. heard anything but good things about you. Um, I can't say that about, you know, your client. <laughs> There's well, people I mean, on the radio all the time, but I know you uh, enjoy working in ICBC defense. I do. I actually am... They're a great client, as far as I'm concerned. I think that... You know, they are, you know, they're an individual, they're a corporation which is just trying to do, you know, what they're supposed to do and also what they can do. I think that uh, from a client's perspective, they're attentive, they listen, and I think that at the end of the day, I'll leave them to be able to talk about themselves. But from my personal experience in this profession, I've been happy with them. So, um you know, things are in the change, as we know, with mm -hmm. uh, the government's uh, legislation, which was recently passed, which will change the landscape of litigation um, for insurance defense, as well as personal injury. But for me, honestly, I'm, I was originally called in Ontario in 2013. So I'm in year seven now, and I'm really excited about what the future holds. Really? What, 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 excites you because i th i was under the impression that like you guys were facing the same sort of unemployment prospects that the plaintiffs bar are are worried about we are i think that the landscape is changing i think that you know a fundamental shift is happening i can only speak from my professional perspective which is so before i went to law school i had i got an undergraduate degree in business from mm -hmm. capilani university and so my mindset has always been that there are two sides to the practice of law. There's the legal aspect and there's the business aspect. For mm -hmm. me personally, what is being provided is an opportunity uh, to differentiate myself, differentiate my practice, and move into other areas of law in addition to insurance defense out there. Because there is more than one insurance company you know, there are other aspects of personal injury which come into play. So insurance defense will change, as will the plaintiff side personal injury aspect will change. There's nothing around that. And I will leave other people to argue the pros and cons about that. For me personally, I look at this and say, okay, who am I as a lawyer? And what do I want to do with my practice? And how am I going to shift myself, differentiate myself, market myself, and teach myself to be a better use to whoever client wants to hire me. Well, now they ta they say there's all these rumors, and I don't do the, the plaintiff work, so I don't know that they're true, but there's all these rumors that uh, you guys never like to go to trial. Is that true? I can't speak to anybody else. I love trial. Um, <laughs> you know, I love going to trial from my professional perspective about it. I think that, you know, for me, it's I'm a litigator. You know, mm -hmm. for me, trial is just another aspect of the job. I personally enjoy it because I've always been a fan of not just the seriousness of it. I know it's a serious matter. And, you know, it is the last place you want to end up 
when it comes to litigating because ultimately you want to come to a resolution if you can. But if we are in trial, I enjoy the pageantry and the theater of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is serious. You know, you can't take away the fact that we deal with serious issues when we go to court. So there is that level of decorum and respect and, you know, the solemnity of it. Um, but that being said, as a litigator, I enjoy going to trial. This week, we are talking to Rebecca Bretter. Rebecca is an animal lawyer. Uh, she is one of Canada's top 25 most influential lawyers named in 2019 and an all-around super nice badass. Uh, and so I thought I would have her on because we're about to enter the hot August long weekend and sort of the hottest part of the year. And it's a good time to think about what are our obligations when it comes to having our pets in our car and what are our obligations if we see an animal in distress in a vehicle with the windows rolled up or that looks like it's too hot what must we do if anything and what are we permitted to do and this is some of Rebecca's numerous areas of expertise so she's going to join us on the podcast and tell us all about having hot animals in hot cars Hello, Rebecca. Thank you for joining us on the podcast. Hi, thanks a lot for having me. I'm so excited you could join me because this is an issue that, like, I get asked about at this time of year every year, and then I don't hear really have good answers for people, and I don't hear people talking about it, um, which means Mm -hmm. people don't get good answers. So, first, first of all, as a dog owner, you and I are both dog owners, what are our obligations, legally speaking, when we're traveling in the summer with our pets in our cars? Our legal obligations towards our animals is first and foremost to make sure that they are okay, that they are safe, that they're not put in danger. Legally, there's a term called distress, so that means that an animal can't be left without food, water, proper shelter. Uh, It also now includes that the animal... Uh, can't be in a situation where the animal is either too hot or too cold. And so our obligation is to make sure that we don't put them in a situation where they could get into distress. So when we're traveling, that would mean that even if you want to go in to buy like a Slurpee at the 7-Eleven and you think you're only going to be a minute because you don't see any cars outside or, you know, no lineups inside and it's a sunny beautiful sunny day do not not leave your dog or any other animal for that matter in your car even if you think it's just going to be like oh a minute or two or i'm going to leave the window cracked open a bit it's not enough like it, it would i invite people to sit in a car with windows closed safely of course like do this safely for <laughs> a minute or two just yourself without mm-hmm. any animals in on a sunny day, especially in any time between May to the end of September and sometimes October, actually April, I would say April to the end of October, sit in your car on a sunny day for as long as you can before you start feeling hot and you'll see that it doesn't take long, like literally a couple of minutes, depending on the temperature, of course, outside, for it to get unbearably hot inside. And of course, animals can't 
speak. I mean, they can. We can't understand them, but that's a topic for, for another conversation. <laughs> but they um, they get hot really quickly, as, as do we. So we definitely should not be feeding animals in cars, even with the windows cracked open, uh, even for a couple of minutes. And is there like a like a temperature range where y- you should start to not leave? the animal in the car like is it you know 15 degrees or is there any science on this that you know of there is and don't quote me on the exact temperature but it's somewhere in the it, it's somewhere around 15 degrees celsius um so anything if the temperature is 50, it's around 15 I, I can't remember exactly now but if it's and i would say on to err on the side of caution like anything above 12 degrees celsius do not leave your your animal in the car on a sunny day and the thing is though especially in vancouver and areas like vancouver where it looks like it's cloudy but within minutes the sun could poke through the clouds a bit or the clouds could could um uh could move it, it just it really doesn't take long for the car to get hot and what type you of just don't what type of consequences could you face if you leave your animal in the car when it's hot out? Well, worst case scenario is uh, a, a police officer who cares enough or a BC special, BCSBCA special constable officer comes around and you could be arrested for animal cruelty, both under the criminal law and our provincial animal cruelty laws in BC. That's a worst case scenario. Usually what happens though is people get, uh, people get fines or or warnings depending on the situation but you know i i think that um if people really start getting stupid like that i'm i wouldn't be surprised if police officers finally put their foot down and start uh, start charging people with animal cruelty as they should as they should right and what when it comes to like you being a person outside a vehicle if you're out in the public and you see an animal in a car what obligations do you have to do something about it if any mm-hmm. yes that's a great question i often get asked well if i see a car i mean if i see a dog in a car with closed windows and the and the dog looks hot and there's no owner in sight what do i do can i smash the window you know, unfortunately, I mean, I, I say unfortunately, uh, unfortunately, uh, people are not allowed to smash windows of other people's cars or to break into cars to to let the dogs out. That's really? the starting point. So you They're can't save an animal. Well, technically, no, but I mean, there's always a bit of a gray zone. So what, um, and I've heard the police just recently say, uh, it was in one of their ads on, on the radio, saying that, no, you're not allowed doing that unless the animal is critically in distress. So, like, what does that mean, right? Does that mean that if you believe that the animal is about to die, that you're allowed smashing the window? The messaging was a bit unclear from... Uh, from I think this was the, the Vancouver police um, saying something like this on the radio but I mean the starting point is no you can't smash a, a window in but uh, there are things that you can do so very often people do leave uh, a little bit of a window open which again is certainly not enough 
If you have, by any chance, a towel with you, <laughs> I, I don't know too many people are carrying around towels with them, but you never know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you have, like, You're on your way back from the beach. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but I mean, one suggestion, this was uh, the SPCA suggestion recently that I thought was a good idea. Again, if you have one handy, if you have a towel handy and you have water handy to soak um, the towel and somehow put the towel in, squeeze it through the, the, the window and put it into the car so that the animal could cool down. Um, or if you could see, the other suggestion is, I mean, just see if the car is unlocked. If the car is unlocked, open the door. Mm-hmm. Technically, I mean, I, I suppose that's, that, that may be trespassing onto someone's property, but again, I've seen the police say that you can do this. That I guess because you're not damaging someone's property, even though you're technically trespassing. But if you could open the car door to let the animal out, make sure that you have a handle on the animal so that the animal doesn't run across the street and get run over. Right. Um, but um, what about if, reaching in and unlocking the door? Is that then breaking and entering? I mean, well, this is me, I think a criminal lawyer, asking you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think technically it is, but yeah. I would say if you can do that, then do that. Because ultimately, if you could save an animal's life, then do so. Uh, we start with a discussion with Ron Moore, who is the genius lawyer slash toxicologist slash Red Seal's chef slash expert in everything, who's going to talk to us about different types of alcohol that can be produced either naturally in your body or get into your body through things like occupational exposure and result in false readings on different types of breathalyzers. And he's going to go through all of the science around that and some steps that you can take if you think that you have had a test result that is unreliable due to some of these reasons. So this is must-listen information if you're concerned, especially if you work as a hairdresser, as a painter, um, as a road paver, Uh, anything where you're exposed to chemicals, or if you're on a ketogenic diet, or if you have diabetes, must listen information. So joining us again on the Driving Law podcast is one of my favorite guests, Ron Moore. And I hope that nobody else is offended that I've said you're one of my favorite guests, Ron. But you are an expert in everything, as far as I'm concerned. You know about toxicology, you know about law, you're a lawyer, you're a toxicologist, you're a Red Seal chef, um, you're, you're basically Wonder Man. Oh, well, thank you, Kyla. It's, it's nice to be back. It's good to talk to you. And uh, I think we've got some really interesting topics uh, lined up for us today. Oh, definitely. Um, I wanted to talk to you because you and I were having sort of a discussion um, over email on a a listserv for the DUI Defense Lawyers Association about uh, volatile organic compounds that your body can produce if you're in a fasting state and some research that's been done on how those can affect breath tests. And I thought, perfect, let's talk about this. Yes, and that is a really good idea. I think the place that I wanted to start is a recent U.S. Supreme Court case called Birchfield versus North Dakota, which specified that you cannot refuse to take a breath test in the United States. Now, there is a diversity amongst the United States and the different states as to whether the person arrested gets to choose what chemical test they take or what the officer gets to choose. Uh, what the Birchfield decision did was say that you could refuse to take a blood test, 
can suffer the consequences, but that a breath test is a reasonable search after arrest, and so you could not uh, refuse to take a breath test. And I think that means that there's going to be a lot more breath testing than blood testing in the future. And so talking about some of the issues that come up with breath testing would be appropriate for this time. Can, can you explain to me, because in Canada we've we've had for as long as I've been a lawyer and a long time before that, it's just always been the law. You can't refuse any of the tests. The officer has to have grounds to make the demand and they have to make a proper demand and there's all the elements they have to comply with. But if they do, you can't refuse. You're legally obligated to comply. Why is there a distinction in U.S. law between breath and blood? Well, that goes back to the U.S. Uh, Constitution and our Bill of Rights. The Fourth Amendment uh, to the Constitution provides that you're to be secure in your person, place, houses, and effects, and all that, against unreasonable searches. And the U.S. Supreme Court felt that invading the body, using a needle and puncturing the skin to take blood, was invasive, and it was an unreasonable search unless there was some exigent circumstance that required it. And there's a variety of different types of exceptions to the Fourth Amendment that could apply. And one of the earlier cases back in the 1960s was Schmerber versus California that kind of established that for a lot of people, they thought that just the dissipation of alcohol was an exigent circumstance. And that, you know, if there was a delay for any reason, we can go ahead and draw your blood just because your blood alcohol level is going away. Uh, the U.S. Supreme Court finally decided uh, that that wasn't by itself sufficient and that there would need to be some other exception to the Fourth Amendment, such as consent. You can consent to the search, say, sure, take my blood, I don't care. Or they can still use extra circumstances if they can justify it. Um, one of the other exceptions would be a search incident to arrest, but the Supreme Court still felt that because of how invasive a blood test is, the even search incident to arrest wasn't enough to get past the Fourth Amendment's prescription against an unreasonable search or an invasive search. And because... Breath testing is so much less invasive. All you do is blow into the machine. Uh, nothing is kept. Nothing is saved. Nothing can be used for any other purpose. The, it was a, such a reasonable alternative to a blood test that they could say, well, if you want a blood test, you have to get a warrant if the person doesn't give you consent. But breath tests are so easy, non-invasive, doesn't keep anything. We're going to say that it's not reasonable to refuse that. that if they have grounds to get one, you can't refuse to provide it. Wow. Okay. That, I mean, to me, it makes sense. <laughs> but I, you know, I just logically in my, in my Canadian law brain, I'm like, but it's, it's all evidence of the offense. And so it's directly related to the arrest. But that's uh, the difference between our two constitutions. Um, Absolutely. So, when it comes to breath tests, there are a bunch of different ways that breath tests can be conducted. And I know you said, you know, the courts have said they're not that intrusive. But having done a bunch of different types of breath tests, some are a lot more difficult to do than others. Right. And so I think where I wanted to go next is talking about the two different circumstances in which you could be asked to give a breath test and the different types of machines you might get asked to blow into. And so there are certain types of machines that are very portable and can be used at roadside. And those are often used prior to arrest in a screening mode. And here in California, where I am, it's considered just another one of the field sobriety tests uh, to tell whether or not there's alcohol or if something else is causing the symptoms. But then because of California's uh, laws, 
uh, all relevant evidence is admissible, and the number the machine comes up with is admissible as evidence, even though wow. it's not supposed to be treated as evidence according to how the, the uh, cases are describing the evidence and saying, well, this is just a field sobriety test. It's a field sobriety test on steroids uh-huh. because that number is coming in, uh, as opposed to you can also uh, take a test after arrest, which is part of the evidence of your blood alcohol level that goes to whether you violated the per se statute of being above a certain level and as circumstantial evidence of whether or not you're too impaired to drive safely under the common law driving under the influence part of the statute. Uh, So uh, let's talk first about the tests that are more portable, the ones that are used in the field. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are different types of breath testers or different theories of operation, different mechanisms that breath testers use. Some are based on what's called a fuel cell, some are infrared, some are based on a, a semiconductor, and some of them have combinations. Let me touch on the semiconductor ones first. These are often consumer-grade uh, devices, very inexpensive. They use a uh, metal oxide semiconductor, which is uh, sensitive to alcohol vapor, but they're not terribly accurate. Uh, they have a wide margin of error, and they're subject to a lot of interference from some of the things we'll talk about in a little bit. Um, but some people will use them just to kind of get an idea. Do I need to call a taxi or an Uber or something? Or am I okay to get home? Uh, and as long as you recognize that these things aren't the most accurate things in the world, you know, they're great for parties and, and you know, do I drive home or not, uh, but wouldn't be something that would be admissible as evidence under either circumstance. The fuel cell devices are also on the smaller side. They're typically handheld devices, but bigger than the semiconductor devices. And... Uh, Typically, more engineering has gone into the design of them, uh, especially the ones that are approved by our federal government for use as screen devices or as evidential devices. And we have a whole list of them that are approved for post-arrest evidential use. What What are the ones uh, that they use right now, like that are most often deployed in California? Uh, you typically see one of uh, three different instruments being, or three or four different instruments being used at roadside in California. Uh, the Draeger 7410, or not 7410, the 7510 uh, instrument, uh, the handheld device. Uh, you also see uh, the Intoximeter's uh, AlcoSensor 4 or AlcoSensor 5, mm-hmm. and there's also an AlcoSensor FST that I see occasionally used. More of them are using the 4 or the 5. Right. And then you also sometimes see a LifeLock FC20 uh, used by some of the agencies in California as a screen device, and so most of those the, uh, are also approved for post-arrest evidential use. The, uh, you see those are used as screening devices. In, in BC, we're using the AlcoSensor FST um, for okay. all of our roadside testing, so that's a, that's a fuel cell device. And just for the listeners, the semiconductor devices that you were talking about would be like those pocket BAC or the backtrack devices that you buy at London Drugs or any grocery store. Oh. <laughs> Right. Now, Backtrack makes both semiconductor and fuel cell-based devices, uh, but a lot of the Backtrack devices you see that are available at a lot of the big box stores are their semiconductor versions. And, uh, you know, they have a place, but uh, the place is probably not in the courtroom. <laughs> nope. <laughs> it's your pocket in your kitchen for entertainment. <laughs> right. Um, uh, so the okay. fuel cell devices work basically on a principle that there's an electrode in there. It's uh, a platinum electrode and the alcohol reacts 
with uh, an electrolyte on the platinum electrode creates a voltage proportional to the amount of alcohol that's there, and that can be converted into the blood alcohol level. I'm going to end with a little musical interlude, the latest by the Accutones, the COVID-19 Blues. That's my song. That's your song, yes. Next song is going to be That's Not My Goat. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, if you are interested in reaching us to talk about a goat or a phone or dangerous driving constitutional challenge, give us a call 604-685-8889. We are still answering the phones even in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. And you can find us online at VancouverCriminalLaw.com. And now tune in. And hang on, come back next week because... We got a hankering to spend a little time with you. Just last week we were together. All this changed real fast. Who knew this was a coming? I hope our love will last. They deferred my jail sentence. This ain't freedom. That is true. Isolation's what I meant. I've got the COVID-19 blues. I've got a hankering to spend a little time with you. Being so far apart, well, it's making me so blue. Staying alone is required. Know that surely true. Isolation's what I meant. I've got the COVID-19 blues. Got lots of toilet paper, but rare trips to the loo. All this hoarding was just wrong, what nervous people do. Seeing the world out my window, the right thing to do. Isolation's what I'm in, I got the COVID-19 blues. We should have thought ahead, first China, then Iran. This is my first pandemic, I'm doing all I can. I wash my hands with soap, water, sanitizer too. I douse myself in vodka just to spend some time with you. How about our life together, wanna be a better man? I've had lots of time for thinking since my quarantine began. Still have my jail sentence, gonna serve it, yet boo-hoo. Isolation's what I'm in, I've got the COVID-19 blues. I got a hankering to spend a little time with you. In so far apart, well, it's making me so blue. Staying alone is required. Know that surely true. Isolation's what I'm in. I got the COVID-19 blues. Isolation's what I'm in. I got the COVID-19 blues. Isolation's what I'm in, I got the COVID-19 blues.